Let's Go Green, sponsored by Airgrid, managing and operating Ireland's electricity grid for a cleaner energy future. Check out airgrid.ie for more. Good evening and you are very welcome to this week's episode of Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. I hope you are safe and well as you tune into the show this week. Well, last week we had Catherine Casey on from the Heritage Council about the work that they're doing in trying to protect our built heritage and the role that they play in that. And she mentioned something which caught my ear around the specific needs older buildings have when it comes to renovations. And I thought we have to talk about this because, you know, renovating older homes is, you know, the right thing to do in that it's the more sustainable thing to do. It's, you know, instead of trying to create something out of nothing, why not go back in and tidy up what's already been there? But the whole process can be very daunting and you know, expensive. So you want to make sure that you're doing it in the right way to begin with. So we're joined now by Dan Keane of Dan Keane Architects in Port Leash. Dan, you're very welcome to the programme. Good evening. Thanks very much for having me on, Ashley. Now, Dan, I know there's been lots of government announcements in, in recent years around, you know, different schemes that we could all apply for, you know, if you have the money um, to, to to buy a property or maybe to do up a property if you've inherited on a farm or that. But it can all be very overwhelming applying for these grants and even just figuring out where to start with an older building. Like it's, it seems to me like it's nearly an easier prospect to get something off a plan or even to start from scratch. Yeah, uh, correct. Older buildings uh, can be quite daunting to go in around, uh, especially if there is uh, damage regarding dampness or um, roof damage, anything like that. They could be semi-derelict, dangerous to get in around, and also the smells when you go into them. Uh, with with the dampness, if they're left for a very long time, people are just put off them straight away. Mm. Uh, and get them to have the vision to see that, right, it's at a certain stage now, and if we go about it the right way, this is 100% habitable in 16 weeks. That's where we... we get it too like yeah. 16 weeks and that, that's that's a big promise because like I don't know any building project that um goes on time 16 weeks seems like god click and you'll miss it yeah uh once you get your paperwork through once construction starts project of that scale shouldn't take more than 16 to 20 weeks maximum okay, okay. yeah yeah so how important is it to find somebody like an architect, a, a foreman, like you know, any kind of contractors at all that have the knowledge of working with older buildings? Yeah. Um, generally, what we would do in this instance, a, a lot of time when uh, people come to you with these buildings, it's usually uh, part of a family farm or mm-hmm. a building that has been passed down through the generations. Generally, what happens Oh, I have a neighbour up the road that's came down and had a look at this first with me and he said, we can do this, not that, break that through the ear. And a lot of time that doesn't work because they're turning um, bedrooms into living rooms and the, the bedrooms could be on the north or uh, west facing side or the north side of the house property. They don't get a lot of sunlight. Uh, so the, the best thing to do is get your uh, house surveyed uh, and digitally drawn up and transfer it onto the system. We then get you your best layouts. At that stage, 
we'd have a panel of builders that we generally use in Leash Offley, that area that would have experience uh, of this type. If it's a case where um, the uh, applicant has a brother uh, or family member that's going to do it for them, we'd work closely with them to tell them how we get the building to a standard uh, that is B1 or above. Uh, and we, we'd supervise on site and, and work with them through, through the processes. Because even like, I know, like old stone buildings, like they need to breathe. Like you can't just make them airtight like you would a modern building, you know? Yeah. E- like even the materials that you use would, would be slightly different. And I, I kind of know this anecdotally. I know nothing about construction, you know? So yeah. you, you really do need someone who knows what they're doing, don't you? You do indeed. And that's the uh, biggest problem with, with these old buildings. A lot of the time um, in the early 80s, uh, even mid 80s, they would have um, wet dashed the outside with a concrete based product. Whereas previous to that, it would have been all lime render, mm-hmm. which would allow the stone underneath to breed and it would self-regulate the moisture uh, in, in the in the stonework and the, the walls. But what happened then with modern materials mixing with the old style, it uh, concrete base the outside of the, the house you would then dry line the inside of the house you would then trap the moisture uh, in the in the uh, stone and the sod and therefore that's where all your back mould and your problems uh, come from so we take a step back then when we have a look at these uh, buildings a lot of the time you'd be have, having to look at maybe hacking plaster off and that turns up its own problems then because you're using uh, heavy machinery you're, you're banging walls that have stood for over 100 years, mm-hmm. which can cause more problems with cracking uh, and damage to existing stonework. So it has to be, that end of it has to be handled with care. And uh, a lot of the time then you'd be replacing old, maybe oak uh, window heads uh, where they'd have been rotten away because the moisture has got in at them. And again, you're, you're needling through um, materials that have no real structure and it's you really do need good craftsmen that know what they're doing to get through that sort of work. It sounds like a potential nightmare. Um, it's not. It's patience. Okay. <laughs> it, it is. Yeah. And all buildings are definitely a labour of love. Like, uh, uh, it's taking your time. Sometimes uh, you, you'll find where you have a guy sitting on a, on a JCB or a, or a machine and going mad to put the, the bucket through these buildings. But uh, you, you just can't do that. You just have to slow down one one job at a time and come up with the best formula for getting it done. I, like, growing up or that, or, you know, you'd hear people talk about, oh, so-and-so's bought this old derelict building and that's only a money pit. Um, I know we know better now in that, like bringing these old derelict buildings back into use, you know, particularly ones that are in our town centres, because that is a a big problem. You know, you you build the community back up in the town centre and that's really important too. But is there any like, because you'd see them all around the place. You go, God, yeah, if I had a bit of money now, that'd be fabulous. But I'd probably need a million euro to do this. Like, how affordable is this for, you know, the average worker? Um, yeah, uh, to, and you're dead right, town centre houses generally 
uh, have your wide 600, two foot wide walls in them. Uh, probably not a lot of money spent on them for maybe 50, 60 years and everything within those needs to be touched or touched up or done, worked onto it. And um, so to get your hands on one of them, you're, you're really, you're, you're talking about a full revamp, you know, from yeah. floors, walls, windows, doors, roof. Okay. And you, you just have to accept that while there'll be lovely features in it to salvage, um, you could have, um, lovely splayed windows and trying to keep that effect on it. You could have the remnants of old shutters that were there to try and salvage those. And the problem is slowing down the builder to say, well, don't take that, leave it mm-hmm. and we'll work with it or lift it out easily that you're not breaking it up in, uh, and it becomes rubbish. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and again, with the likes of those uh, buildings, it is about then guys because they're generally uh, semi or um, tourist houses. So you have to be quite careful with what's going on next door. Um, you can't just go in and start removing walls and breaking out uh, stonework. Um, I'd always recommend doing a dilapidation report on the houses either side before you start and then making sure that your neighbours know that there is going to be disruption and go at it. Um, so to, to get them to, and ev- everything now is marked on your uh, bill and energy rating. Uh, and a lot of these houses would be G-rated houses because mm-hmm. they wouldn't have any insulation or a heating system. Anything with an G- oil heat. G is as low as it goes, basically. G, isn't it? G is as low as it goes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so uh, to get it uh, anywhere from there into the B, you, you know, you really you'd want to be hitting B1 if you're doing that level of work. So you're really starting, you deal with the fabric of the building first, your floors, your uh, walls, your windows, your doors, your what you do in your roof then, which are your insulation and your attic and that sort of stuff. So if you get your house uh, insulated in the correct fashion where you're allowed your outside walls to breed and your your new um, super insulated home uh, is working in tangent with what was already there, you're, you're on a winner. You know, you, you are future-proofing the house for 60, 70 years. Okay. Yeah. And like, you know, I know the government, you know, is trying to get, a lot of these houses back into use and like even I heard there recently where revenue is looking at electricity usage of properties to see you know well if there's no power being used over the course of 12 months nobody's using that property um so like there 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 are genuine efforts to try and get properties like this back in use but is it an option for like I spoke to um a 35-year-old man there on Midlands today the other day and he's from Carlo he's working in Galway has saved up a healthy deposit, cannot buy a two-bed apartment, you know, just just can't mm. find one, right? Yeah. Like, are they options for, are these type of properties, are they an option for first-time buyers who are just really trying to get a roof over their own heads or is it for someone more experienced? Uh, no, there, there really are options, uh, okay. definitely, yeah. Um, the transition period from getting it from your, semi-derelict dwelling house to habitable house, that's your tricky period because you're probably still renting and you're spending money on rent and you're also spending money on building. And it, it's just that that is your trickiest time. If you have a place to stay in that interim period, then you're on a winner. Um, so the government grants, uh, you've got um, 50,000 grant uh, for a vacant property grant. 
which they are the guys in the local authorities are helpful in, in getting that. The uh, derelict house grant then is that step further where uh, you'll need your derelict house report done. You will need um, to do your paperwork, submit that to your local authority, and then you have to sit and wait until the local authority inspect uh, and they sign off on it. A lot of people, and I have had projects where uh, clients are mad eager to go to get the property the next Saturday, they're free, they're in, they're breaking up walls, they're breaking out stuff. And when you go to the local authority, they're saying to you, look, at you, you shouldn't start until we see it. We have to be able to uh, make sure that this is derelict and dangerous before you start on it. So derelict and dangerous is what the local authority are looking for to make sure you get the extra 20,000 top up to make that house safe. I can totally understand that temptation, like particularly if you've been searching for ages and you finally get a spot and you're like, you're you're just ready to go and get in there and get the hands dirty. Um, but OK, you have to wait until the inspector comes out and says, yeah, yeah. this this place is definitely derelict and dangerous. And your mobile phone video of what it was like six weeks ago when you started, that's just not going to um, stand up, no. is it? No, it's not. No, no. They, 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 in fairness to them, uh, they have to be able to sign off and stand over mm-hmm. uh, their aspect of this money going out. You know, uh, if you go in, take the roof off, oh, and then try to explain, well, it was full of dry rot or it was full of woodworm. And they're saying, well, I can't see that. Like, so how, how can I justify uh, giving it, you know? But um, no, that's, it is patience game at that stage. Yeah. The navigation of those grants and, like you say, working with the local authority and that, like, is it doable alone or do you need an architect or an engineer on board to help you through that process? Um, You will need for your derelict house report, uh, an architect engineer to uh, do the report uh, and submit it in a format that will be accepted and put on file on your application. So for that aspect, 100%. The paperwork for your grant, it, it uh, it's all online and there's it, it's explained in simple text. So uh, any day, you know, anybody could do that, that aspect of the application. Again, if you've already engaged with your architect or engineer, they will help you fill up any technical data that you need to put in on that. Uh, and then that report goes into the local authority. So at that stage, then, um, if you are concerned of that you're taking off a roof without uh, planning or their planning implications or aspects. Again, your architect or engineer will advise you on that. If you are worried that if you start the building and there might be neighbours uh, that could be affected by the build, the handiest thing to do is a Section 5 application to the local authority where you're submitting your your uh, proposals of what you're going to do to the house. Uh, you have been advised that it doesn't need planning, but you're saying to the local authority, this is what we're doing uh, is this considered development? If it's not, uh, the, the local authority will write back to you and say to you, no, we don't consider that development. You're, you're good to go. So that means you have a piece of paper in your hand from the local authority. When work starts, if anything, if anybody goes to the um, uh, council about the uh, uh, work that's been carried out at the property, they have a record to say, no, listen, we, we've everything's in order here. So, Are you better off in a case like that just knocking next door and saying hi you know my name is would you have a few minutes we love the area you know we can't buy new builds so we decided Mm. to buy you know that derelict 
thing next door has probably been an yeah. eyesore for the past 20 years. You know, how important is it to start from day one of uh, just making the effort to be nice to the neighbours? Oh, yeah. Look, it's, you're, you're going to be living there uh, for the rest of your life. So it is always good to start off with good foot. Now, unfortunately, not everybody is acceptable to new, to change. And while you might be very eager to get in and get going at this house, the neighbour might be saying, well, my son or daughter was going to buy that and you outbid them or, you know, so you, you can't legislate for objectors. And that's what I say to my client. Look, if they object, they object. That's part of life. OK, but put the best foot forward with them. If they're still not receptive, make sure you have your documents in order with the local authorities. And if you're in line with that, you, you'll have no issues. And like, it sounds like you're having like a positive experience going through the process with the grants and the local authorities, because I know some people will be, ah, this is just another government scheme. It's it's just, it's not worth the hassle. Um, I won't get the money anyway. Like there's no point in even bothering applying. Like, like how straightforward have you been finding it? Yeah. Um, so some applications uh, seem to be a, a little bit easier than others. Um, for example, we were doing um, a, an old schoolhouse uh, and we're, turning that into a domestic uh, uh, house. We have the planning permission granted since uh, 2019 and the client, luckily enough, has has been waited or waited because they had the money at the time uh, and now the grants were it came up. But we applied for uh, both a vacant house grant and a direct house grant uh, on that um, property. Now, they, they gave the applicant the uh, derelict house grant uh, uh, but they didn't give them the, or sorry, they gave them the vacant house grant, but didn't get the derelict house grant because they didn't consider the property to be in a derelict or dangerous place. Now, this has boarded up windows. Uh, there was timber floors in it. They were rotten, but were taken out before the, the, the authority saw them. And mm. the roof is, uh, it's just slated with no insulation. There's no... Um, uh, felt or anything underneath it. It's the original line of uh, slate on the back or the line on the back of the slate. But that's uh, so that that's another argument we have to have to try and get this twenty thousand because yeah. this person really really needs it. You know because it, the project becomes unviable. Yeah, and something else suffers. You know. Yeah. So so again, we'll look, we'll we'll have a chat with them again and move. But that basically came down to starting without them seeing it. And with the floors gone, because it was an easy case, the floors were rotten, but the floors, unfortunately, are are taken out and gone. So you kind of need the inspector to be um, not exactly putting their own lives at risk, but taking a chance when they're walking across the threshold um, for them to be happy to say that it's actually derelict and dangerous. They want to experience the danger. Yes, yeah, yeah. So like, and again, you can't put yourself at risk on on site. No, but... Uh, you take the picture, uh, you do your report, you can document what you've seen there. If there's a dispute, then it's very easy to bring that inspector out with you and say, you walk across the floor and tell me how you get on or you have a look at that roof there and tell me how you get on. So uh, that's that's the simple, you know, that's the easiest way of getting it. And so you reckon this is this this is kind of a viable for maybe like starters, starter homes, maybe um, a, a cottage or a cow shed on a family farm. It can actually be turned into a home. Oh, without a doubt. If you have the building, you're 90,000 already there because you don't have to buy anything. 
you know, mm-hmm. or 120,000 or whatever they're selling for. Like, uh, I have been to sites where buildings 10 years ago, these would have been knocked and used as farm roads, the stone or the stone would have been used on. Uh, somebody would have come and said to them, I'm building a house down the road. Would you, can I buy the stone off that building? But now these are being turned into houses. Uh, and look at your, your, once you have the structure there, you can get your 40s. Generally, these are small and small by nature, you know, mm-hmm. all the other buildings. You can get 40 square meters onto the back without going through the planning process. That gets you, and usually these buildings are anywhere between 30, 35 meters to 45 square meters. So that gets you a 90, 95 square meter house, about a thousand square foot. You, you, you'll get it to um, a B1, a, a tree level with top up grants from SEI. You'll, you'll gain another between 15 and 20,000 there from them. So suddenly you have in your account 90,000 and a building uh, okay. to, to get going. So, um, yeah, it, it definitely is. If you have the building, you are ahead of the posse. Well, Dan Keane of DKA Architects, it is a lovely to speak to you because normally when we talk about the housing crisis in this country, we, we're, we, we have bad news to talk about. So it's great to hear some positivity. Now, I know people listening will go, ah, yeah, but Ashton, you'd still have to have 40 yeah. or 50 or 60,000 in the bank account. But yeah, but that's, you know, if you have a plan, that's doable over a period of time. Dan, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on Let's Go Green. Great. Thanks very much. Ashton. Bye-bye. I'll be back after the break. Let's Go Green, sponsored by Airgrid, managing and operating Ireland's electricity grid for a cleaner energy future. Check out airgrid.ie for more. You're listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. We're going to talk about food waste and indeed the food cloud. We're joined now by Angela Rutledge, Head of Public Engagement at Food Cloud. Angela, you're very welcome back to Let's Go Green. Thanks for having me, Ashley. So tell me first things first, what is Food Cloud? Well, so we are a charity. We are a social enterprise. We employ 86 people. We actually won Charity of the Year last year. We tackle the twin issues of food waste and food insecurity by redistributing surplus food. So surplus food is perfectly good food that would otherwise go to waste if we didn't rescue it. And I guess just food insecurity is not having access to sufficient and nutritious food on a regular basis. So those are the the issues we're tackling. We deal with leading retailers, food companies, uh, other non-profit organizations, the government and the wider business community. And what we're working towards is a more circular economy for our food system here in Ireland and also globally. Now, I think when we think about food insecurity, we imagine places of deprivation, war zones, desert areas. We don't necessarily think about Ireland, but like since the creation of um, a food cloud, I know it's fair to say that you have seen a rise in demand for the services. That's right. We have seen a rise, unfortunately, in the demand for our services. And I think that's a really good point you make around people's idea of what food insecurity is, you know, it's drought, it's famine, it's Ukraine and potentially wheat shortages, it's, you know, not having enough water or having too much water. But now it's food insecurity has arrived 
uh, at home mm. and we're seeing huge increase since COVID and since the cost of living crisis in the number of people that are requiring the services of food banks and these may be people that you might describe as working poor so people who you know are trying to keep up the show on the road and just don't have enough in their budget to pay for everything and that's where the food insecurity comes in so I was out yesterday on the road with our food rescue and I, and I was speaking to the people who are running pantries essentially and they're saying they're seeing a massive increase in demand for their services. That's so worrying, isn't it? Like we're we're a first world country. We, you know, we shouldn't be under that level of pressure. It It's quite sad, really, isn't it? Yes, and we're not alone in the world in seeing this increase. So we were at the European Federation of Food Banks Convention in Madrid uh, last month and all of the food banks there were saying the same thing. I was on a research trip in the US and the level of food insecurity there is absolutely horrific. So what we don't want is this to become any more endemic or systemic mm. in Ireland than it already is because it is quite frightening. And we're actually going into Kenya with a, a project with the Global Food Banking Network uh, funded by the Department of Foreign Affairs to try and offer our solution to food banks that are established there to try and make it more efficient. So it's really great to see that you're maybe helping save lives there, but we are we're making an impact on lives in Ireland as well because of the existence of that food insecurity here. So then, Angela, talk to me about climate change and the role that food waste plays in climate change and and the level of emissions created as a result. Yeah, so our food systems are like a huge contributor to biodiversity loss. Um, water quality, uh, basically car- uh, carbon emissions. So uh, producing food requires resources. And then it's, there is a carbon footprint associated with producing that food, which is fine as long as it's being done as efficiently as possible. But when you're wasting up to 40% of the food that the food system produces, you're ending up with all of these wasted, avoidable carbon emissions. So food waste contributes to 8 to 10% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And to put that in context, global aviation is around 2% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So that's four or five times greater than that. You know, that's a very great problem. So that, the potential associated with reducing food waste is, is huge. And that, that's a, a staggering way of actually looking at it, isn't it? Like Because when, when we think of, you know, airplane travel, we think of, oh, that's the problem. They're, like, obviously, sending planes with fuel into the sky is an issue. Um, but when you, food waste being, you know, twice as bad, three times as bad, you know, it's, it's, it's a really good way for us to understand it as, you know, regular punters who are doing our bit at home and we're, we're trying to do things in the right way and really maybe looking about the way we're shopping and um, planning out what we eat. But talk to me about the problem at source and the work that the food cloud is doing with farmers and, and the government even looking at tackling um, waste at food production level. Yeah, so like as you mentioned there, what we can do every day in our houses is, you know, eating is eating and not wasting food is a climate action that we can take three times a day. And according to the EPA statistics, the, uh, the volume of food waste in households is 29%. So mo- mm. most of the food waste is occurring in households. But we believe it's also occurring way back up the food chain before it ever gets out of the farm gate as well. We don't have 
the statistics for those losses, but like anecdotally, we know it's there. So that's where the Growers Project comes in. And what that does is, so first, well, to go back to last year, first of all, we did a pilot project supported by the Department of Agriculture and also by Tesco, who is our leading retail partner. And the idea was to connect growers with surplus produce to community groups around the country who need it. So we would pay for the cost of harvesting the vegetables and getting it to the community groups. Um, and it, it, the pilot project showed that it would help the rural economy provide some solution by collaborating between those two between those two groups to rescue that available service so you're also avoiding the carbon emissions it would increase uh, the capacity and scale to redistribute surface to people who are food insecure and then it would identify where the food waste is happening at that production or primary stage and start to look at ways to avoid that food waste occurring is that so things like is that thing, sorry Angela, it just cut across you there, but is that things like, do you know, we often hear stories of maybe carrots that are crooked or bent being thrown away because they don't look nice enough for retailers. You know, is it at that basic level or is it more nuanced, that, that particular project? Yeah, we, well, you know what, there's always going to be some surplus at farm level and one of the causes of that surplus is sometimes, yeah, retail specification. But there can be many different causes for the surplus, such as like not having, not knowing exactly how much you're going to produce because of the sun and mm. you know what the weather what the weather is like and um, how much is going to be needed in any particular year. So there are many different causes of farm level surplus. But uh, yeah, one of them is that wonky veg story that we hear about, uh, and the need as consumers to also to accept that type of vegetable if it's too big or it's a bit crooked. And not always be looking for the the perfect, uh, the picture perfect carrot. I, for one, like carrots of all shapes and sizes. Um, <laughs> um, but this is obviously a big project for Food Cloud, and one that you know, working with the government on it. What kind of a buy-in are you getting on it? Are you, you know, are are farmers and those in the sector um, willing to come on board with you? Well, I suppose just to put it in a bit of context, uh, if I don't take too long doing that, so. We have our UN SDG goals, uh, 12.3 aims to reduce food waste by half at retail and consumer levels and reduce food losses all along the supply chain, right? Then you have uh, the latest from the European Commission, which is a draft proposal setting binding targets. And then in an Irish context, you have Food Vision 2030, which identifies our ambition to be a world leader in sustainable food systems quite a lofty ambition. Mm-hmm. And then also you have the Circular Economy Act, which came into law last year, and our National Food Waste Prevention Roadmap. And the next version of that roadmap is going to be on the statutory footing. So, yes, I think the government, ha- you know, has set out a roadmap for food waste reduction, but it does need support and buy-in at household level and from every business. And there is there's a food waste charter out there now, which is available for all different sectors, so not just the retailers to sign up to, but also, say, hospitality businesses and other primary processors and manufacturers, and they could all sign up to the food waste charter, which they would be committing to um, measuring what their food waste is using the EPA protocol and then reporting back to the EPA and trying to tackle their food waste that way. So we do, I do think uh, that there is a roadmap set out there, which we can all support and follow, but it's just about trying to do enough to support it and resource that roadmap as well. Yeah, because I can remember when 
Like it's not, it's in the last decade or so that we got calories being printed on menus. And I'm around long enough to remember when that was uh, coming on the cards. And I remember restaurateurs and chefs at the time saying it was just too labour intensive and they didn't have the time or the people to dedicate it. And it seems to me like it's that kind of initiative. Like we need to see hospital canteens, workplace canteens, college canteens on a national scale. We all need to be participating in this, don't we? Yes. Now, you know, I come from a restaurant background and I won't start to tell you how I feel about calories on menus. (laughs) But I do think those businesses need to be supported Mm -hmm. to target their food waste because they are, they do not have the time to do it if they're a very small or micro enterprise like a restaurant. Um, they, they need plenty of support to get on board. Now, fortunately, on the EPA website and with that food waste charger, there is a lot of support. And I think many businesses are coming around to trying to tackle it themselves. Certainly, the retailers we're seeing, you know, we work with all the major retailers. It was Tesco who backed us with a pilot in uh, their Talbot Street Tesco Express way back in 2013 and, you know, and supported us by creating a community champion role where they could really educate their colleagues on how to implement the food cloud and and why they should be doing it and what it meant to the community. So, like, you, you do see businesses taking action. It's just like, how do we accelerate the action? How do you... How do you create more action through collaboration, through insights, through advocacy, yes, to, you know, to go above and beyond whatever it is the EU is suggesting and to resource, to resource that ambition, essentially. It is World Food Day this Monday. The food cloud is 10 years old. I remember when the project was launched, there would have been a bit of cynicism around it, but it's obviously grown in strength and strength. And now we're in a position where we recognise the importance of the work that Food Cloud is doing. What are the ambitions now for the next phase? Yeah, so way back in 2013, Isla Ord and even O'Brien, the founders, they had this moonshot idea of an app that could connect retailers with uh, community groups that need surplus and they pitched it to Tesco who uh, agreed to have a pilot in their Talbot Street Tesco Express and then they went national and then they allowed us to uh, roll out in the UK as well so uh, a big part of the success and the impact has been down to that initial relationship and that lucky opportunity and they also created the role of a community champion which means that they're really embedding the the culture and the whys of what they're doing within their stores. I think that's been really, really important to the success of our last 10 years. But now, like, so Food Cloud is kind of considered a leader in Ireland in the food surplus redistribution space, but we only redistributed a tiny fraction of the total of food that went to waste last year, like less than 1%. So we have an ambition to do so much more and to redistribute more food and do it as well as we can. So obviously what we're doing, we want to do better. We want to share our technology with the universe because we believe believe there's so much potential in that by connecting people who have the food with the communities that need it directly rather than us having to get involved in the logistics. But we also need to uh, collaborate. We need to advocate and create insights for all food system stakeholders so that we can accelerate all of our food system, uh, food waste reduction initiatives. We're all working on this, but we don't want to work on it in silos. We need to come together uh, mm-hmm. to, and to share information, to do more and to do, a, you know, we only have 
75 months left till 2030 and we're supposed to be reducing food waste by 50% by then. So uh, while we have done a lot and we're very proud of what we've done to date, we have a lot more to do and we want to do it in partnership with all of our food system stakeholders. And at the end of the day, there is that very cliched phrase, but, you know, how do you eat an elephant bit by bit? And it's about all of us buying into this and understanding the problem and tackling it bit by bit in our everyday lives as much as we can. Well, Angela Rutledge of the Food Cloud, thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of Let's Go Green. Thanks, Ashling. We'll be back after the break. Let's Go Green, sponsored by Airgrid, managing and operating Ireland's electricity grid for a cleaner energy future. Check out airgrid.ie for more. You're listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. Well, last Friday morning, I was in Abbey Leaks, Ireland's tidiest town, to celebrate Abbey Leaks winning the Tidy Town competition. And I spoke to Robbie Quinn, chairman of Abbey Leaks Tidy Towns, and Jackie Walsh, the treasurer. Here's what they had to say after a week of celebrating. It is a lot of hard work to maintain it to Tidy Towns and to bring it to the standard we were this year. It's hard work. But I suppose it is easier when you say it's it's a beautiful town and we're all so proud of it. It's the jewel in the Midlands and we like to keep it that way. We're going to keep it polished. <laughs> Talk to me, Jackie, about like how long have you been involved? Oh, my goodness, in tidy towns, probably more than 20 years, maybe even longer. As the sea supervisor, I was involved and then I've been involved personally before that and for years. So, yeah, a long time. What keeps you coming back? Um, It's it's. You know, we do it. It's not all about winning the competition. Mm -hmm. We do it for the town. We're very proud of Abbey Lakes. And we don't, it's not all about winning the prize. It's not all about getting it. That helps and it's great boost. And we're so happy this year. It's unbelievable. But it's about being proud of your town. And there's camaraderie in it, you know. I mean, it's not all hard work. There's a lot of fun too. And it's, it's, it's good. Robbie, like a lot of the Thai town's work involves going out on wet and windy and very grim days collecting other people's litter like it's it's a hard old job to get people to row in and to keep coming back every week no it absolutely is and we're blessed with the volunteers we have um, to be fair Ashing, I mean we have a couple of guys who come out early in the morning Jonathan and Anthony and they do early morning pickups from 5 to 7 in the morning 7 days a week 365 days a year and then we have the volunteers that come out on the weekly basis then we have volunteers who come out what we call the invisible hour where they just come at a time that suits them and do, mm. do their bit which is great but Tidy Towns has gone beyond litter picking weeding mm. painting it's so much more now I mean we're very fortunate we live in a beautiful heritage town as you alluded to earlier on but we're also very proud that we're transitioning across to a green and sustainable town which is I think is what is kind of helping us to stand out a little bit from the competition in relation to the tidy towns so there's so much more now than, than, than the cleaning up and, the, and the, it's, it's an important part don't get me wrong it's a vital part but um, it's, there's a lot of stuff going on in the background around climate action biodiversity pollinators uh, you name it you know it's it. and uh, Robbie I present Let's Go Green on Midlands 103 Mid- um, listeners will be aware of that and I, I noticed um, when you were um, your colleagues were being interviewed last Friday when the, um, the award was announced Mary White made the comment and I'm paraphrasing here but it was something along the lines of you'd nearly need a PhD to mm. fill out the application form nowadays that is, it is so complicated so how how much have you done but in terms of environmental measures now in, in Abbey Leaks like give us an idea of the kind of work you've been involved in Robbie well we have three plans and I suppose every good um, 
community should have a plan to start with and we have three five year plans we have a climate action plan we have a biodiversity plan and then we have our own tidy towns plan um, so that sets out what we're doing each year. Um, we then take into consideration the previous year's adjudicator's report, whereby we look at the comments that have been given by the adjudicator and we take off the jobs that need to be done for the following year. In relation to the environmental um, aspects of things, um, this year, for example, um, a project we done was the transplanting of native oaks from the Abeliques estate to the, bookend, sorry, to the bottom end of the town on the Dura approach road. There's 13 oak trees gone in there um, and the provenance of them is unbelievable. Well, we were very kindly gifted them from the, uh, the new owners of the Abeliques House and Farm um, and they are um, saplings from the original Ireland's oldest oak tree which is still standing today so that's one environmental and, and that's not going, we're not going to see that benefit from that t- too much it's for the next generation and the generation after that and the generation mm-hmm. after that and that's, yeah. going to, that's, going, that's as I say going to be a fabulous feature in years to come um, then we have an awful lot of pollinator projects going on around we have installed edible orchards around the town oh wow yeah we've installed native hedging we have planted 15,000 trees in the last three years um, thanks to the likes of Mark and Brian and trees for the land hold on a second 15,000 trees yeah unbelievable Uh, it's hard to imagine it but we have a woodland um, it's called Balladine um, Neighbourwood uh, where we have planted uh, 5,000 trees alone in a two and a half hectare site on a town site on the, on the edge of Balladine here on the edge of town and again that will come to its own in three, four, five years time mm-hmm. where there's walks through and there's it's, it's games area for the kids down there and uh, it'll just create a lovely canopy of trees, native trees. Jackie, I was watching here this morning. Myself and uh, Michael have been here in Albury Lake since before dawn because we wanted to beat the traffic just in case, you know. But we were watching as uh, there was a lot of uh, young kids in school uniforms waiting to be collected by school buses and that. How important is it that like young children see these positive measures being put in place as they grow up for the environment locally, that they get to see people making an effort? Oh, it's very important. I mean, if the young people don't bring it on, it's going to just fade away. But I mean, where schools here, the green flags, we're hoping to get a green flag down in the park. We try to involve the young people as much as we can. The schools are very involved with us. I mean, Tidy Towns is not just about the ones that come out. It's about our community garden, our bog, our park, schools, all of those things. Tidy Towns is everybody. It's about civic pride. It's about pride in your place. But it, it must come from the, the young people. If they don't see it, and we're hoping winning the big one will mm-hmm. will enhance that as well because now they see what we can do, you know. So I think it has to help. But the schools are very involved, yeah. There's something about growing up in a place that's proud of their heritage and proud. Like I remember, like growing up in Offaly and just being so proud to be from Offaly and you, know, the hurlers in the nineties were doing great, mm-hmm. but it gave you a sense of pride about who you were and where you come from, and and that has to pass on now to see, um, to see their older generations in the town actually caring about the environment that everybody lives in. That has to sow a seed for kids in school today. Of course, and it's like everything in life. You lead by example. So by example, the young people see if they see people out cleaning, if they pick, if somebody asks them to pick up a sweet paper, all those little things, they're all part of tidy towns. But you're right, it's, it's the pride in, in your place and um, you don't have to be from a place to no. be proud of it. Um, but you can. I'm very, very proud of Abbey Leaks. I'm not native to Abbey Leaks, but I'm very, very proud of Abbey Leaks. I'm proud to be 
Yeah, now, hopefully, regarded as a native after 50 years. Oh, someone will probably still refer to you oh, yeah, uh, as, as a blow-in, blow but in. I think yeah. after 50 years, in <laughs> fairness. Jackie, talk to me then about the prize fund. The prize fund that you, you get now from the win, you're as treasurer, you're, you're going to have to dole out. How do you even start with that? Well, we've never had as much. Excuse me, we've never had as much funding as we win. It's it's really. I mean, we win uh, over eighteen thousand overall, not just for the main one, but for we won six awards at the at the national competition this year. So that money will be ploughed back into projects for Tidy Town. Every penny we win, every penny we earn, it goes back into doing because we need. You need funding, you need finance to keep anything going. Yeah. I mean, all the work is voluntary, but you have to supply materials and things like that and tools. And um, and then there's some grants you can apply for, but you have to have matching funding for things. So all those things. And we help, you know, other uh, organisations that might have a scheme that's going to help us, then we help them. So the money will be put to good use. But very sparingly, I have to tell you, I'm ver- they regard me as being very mean as a treasurer, but... Well, now I think I, I think a tight treasure is probably an asset. Save pair of hands, I'd say. Exactly, yeah. better, better I think than being a bit too flahula, yeah. really, isn't it? So, are there any projects that you think, Jackie, like you'd, that the uh, the committee really wants to go for now over the next couple of years? Have any big plans in the pipeline? I know what's our biggest plan. Go on, Robbie. Um, the active travel. We're looking to get funding for the active travel. Um, as I say, we're trying to transition from uh, a beautiful heritage town to a green and sustainable town. We want to try... We have a serious traffic problem in town. Everyone's aware of that. Yeah. We have to try and find a balance between allowing traffic into the town to obviously supplement the businesses here, but at the same token, discourage... Uh, the trucks from coming off the motorway now there's not that many of them coming off the motorway but nonetheless they all add to the traffic so we're looking for funding to bring in um, a series of professionals uh, traffic management professionals uh, to build a new town plan for us with the idea the core of it being active travel where we discourage people to, uh, to to leave the car at home sorry to encourage people to leave the car at home and walk and cycling around town we're hoping to try and create corridors around the town in a kind of a joined up thinking approach so would I say within two kilometres of the town people would be maybe leave the car walk in um, cycle in and there would be traffic camera measures around the town to try and discourage as I say the uh, slow the whole traffic down that would discourage the lorry say from coming off the motorway because it's slower to come through here now all of a sudden mm-hmm. um, if it also make it a nicer f- feel to the town and kind of take back the town centre if you like for, for the people um, and that allow the other the business to flourish and, and create new businesses and create new civic areas that uh, people would benefit from you know and the kids would be able to cycle to school etc and yeah. you know, all of that yeah, because like it is, and in fairness, now we are we are here in in the the main mm. part of the town, and we can hear the, the traffic, the, the traffic yeah. going past us. So, <coughs> has I'm sure Jackie, you've noticed that in your your 50 years of living in Abbey Leaks, getting worse and worse as time goes on, and it has to be a source of frustration at times as well. Oh, it can be very annoying. We thought with the bypass, we actually had a a goodbye party for the tra- <coughs> excuse me. We had a goodbye party for the traffic. We were out on the street handing out little goodies and thinking we're going to be bypassed we won't have this much traffic anymore we worried mm. about how it would affect the businesses we needn't have bothered it calmed for a while but it's back it's back with the vengeance and um, it's, we want people to come to the town but not just to drive through it all the yeah. time we want people to come and feel free to stop go into our, our lovely shops our cafes our restaurants our new restaurant has won an award and um, you know 
all those things are important to the town. We don't want people just to drive through. And years ago, people, when you'd say, I'd be like, oh, I drove through it on the way to Cork. And that used to really irritate me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, don't just drive through it. Stop. Enjoy it. There's a lot of things to see and do. Well, you speaking know. of all those lovely businesses that are here in Abbeyx and plenty to like this, as I said, I was looking in the windows and the bank balance could get very empty very quick in Abbeyx, I think. But we have to give a shout out to Muller and O'Connell who um, gave us some lovely treats here in the OB unit in, in the square in Abbeyx this morning. And unlike that, it is very much a community here that has put the effort in mm-hmm. and, made, and made this work and, and success. And we wish you all the best and um, with the future of Abbey Leaks Tidy Towns. Uh, Jackie, it's uh, looking bright, I think. It's looking bright. If I could just say one thing, Ashling, and thank you for coming today. Um, if people are listening in town and they'd like to volunteer, you're more than welcome. We don't have any formal committee structure, so you needn't worry about getting bogged down in meetings. Just come along any night we're out and we'll find a job for you. And to thank everybody and to congratulate the other places in Leash who did well. We're not the only one. We did the big one, but Port Leash won a gold medal, Dora won a medal, and Balnakil won an Endeavour Award. So congratulations to everybody. Leash did okay this year. Leash did, did well. Okay. In fact, the Midlands did well. The Midlands. With the gold. Yes. Geishel got the Sorry, Geishel. I know yeah. Moore got a gold medal. There's a list yes. of, the, yeah. of people that did well. So it has been a very good year at the Toddy yeah. Towns. Jackie Walsh, who is the treasurer of Abbey League's Toddy Towns, and of course, Robbie Quinn who's the chairperson. Thank you both for joining us here. We'll be back here in Let's Go Green after the break. Let's Go Green, sponsored by Airgrid. Managing and operating Ireland's electricity grid for a cleaner energy future. Check out airgrid.ie for more. You're listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. And thank you very much for tuning in to this week's episode. Remember that Let's Go Green is available on your favourite podcast app, whether that's Spotify, Google or indeed Apple Podcasts. Just search for Let's Go Green with Ashling O'Rourke and you'll be able to listen to it at your convenience if you happen to miss a show on a Monday night. And as always, I love to hear from you. So please do get in contact with me. If there's something that, you know, I haven't gotten around to talking about on the show, there are so many things that I want to feature on Let's Go Green. And I love hearing from you. But sometimes, you know, life gets very busy and I forget or there isn't just enough time or I can't find someone to talk about it. So this is your call out. If you're kind of fed up of listening to the radio and really feeling like people like you are not being heard on radio when we're talking about environmental issues, well, I'm putting the call out directly to you. Hop over to midlands103.com. You'll see a button on air team and then you'll see my name, Ashling O'Rourke, and that will take you to a page where you can email me directly with your suggestions for items for the show. I always enjoy reading your messages. Thank you very much for sending them in. I was out in Abbey Leaks on Friday and it was great to meet listeners in person. So thank you very much. And uh, look, that's how you get in contact with me. So if there's something that you're working on that you want to see featured, you want to get a bit of media coverage for it, uh, you know, go on. There's never any harm in asking. Send me an old email and I'll do what I can if it's a suitable item. Well, there are so many interesting developments in terms of environmental issues and, and efforts to tackle the climate crisis happening right here in the Midlands. And I will continue in my efforts to try and highlight each and every one of these over the coming weeks. But 
for now. Stay safe. I hope you enjoyed the show this week. Have a great week and I'll be back with Let's Go Green same time next week here on Midlands 103.